This is Steve Carroll, and you're listening to EM Basic Essential Evidence. Today we're going to be discussing the paper that created and then validated the Pulmonary Embolism Rule-Out Criteria, or PERC. This is a clinical decision aid that we can use in the ED to safely exclude patients with pulmonary embolism, or PE. The PERC rule is based on clinical criteria alone and helps us avoid using a D-dimer in the workup for PE. We'll talk a little bit about how to use this in real life and the pearls and pitfalls associated with the rules as well. This is not a deep dive on PE by any means, but we'll go through the PERC paper and then talk about how to use it in your everyday practice. As always, this podcast doesn't represent the views or opinions of the Department of Defense, the U.S. Army, or the Fort Hood Post Command. So let's get started. The title of this paper is Clinical Criteria to Prevent Unnecessary Diagnostic Testing in Emergency Department Patients with Suspected Pulmonary Embolism. It was published in the Journal of Thrombosis and Hemostasis in 2004, and the first author is Dr. Jeffrey Klein. The full text is available for free online, so I'll post it on embasic.org and link to it on the website. First, let's give a little background on the problem. Pulmonary embolism is a diagnosis that we consider a lot in the emergency department. We see a lot of patients with chest pain and or shortness of breath in whom we consider the diagnosis. We constantly worry about missing this diagnosis and being the one that sends home the patient who comes back with a bad outcome. Some of this worry is warranted, while a lot isn't, but that's another podcast for another day. The important thing to realize is that the PERC rule arose because of two situations in medicine. First, it became much easier to diagnose PE with the widespread availability of CT scanners. It used to be that pulmonary angiograms performed by an interventional radiologist or other provider was the test of choice, but these were time-consuming and expensive tests that came with a small risk of stroke and other complications. Once CT pulmonary angiograms became widely available and reliable, we started being able to diagnose PE with accuracy in the ED without the time, expense, and risk of a pulmonary angiogram. The second development was the rise of the D-dimer. A D-dimer measures the degradation products of cross-linked fibrin. For whatever reason, that little fascinating but irrelevant statement will be lodged in my brain forever. Basically, this test measures the products of clot breakdown from your body's natural fibrinolysis system. This seems like the perfect test for PE we are identifying the products of unnecessary clotting in your body. However, D-dimers are very sensitive but not specific. So if you have a PE, a D-dimer will be positive most of the time. However, there are a lot of people without a PE that will have a positive D-dimer. You will have a lot of false positives if you test people indiscriminately and will cause patients harm from unnecessary testing and anticoagulation. I remember a quote from my second year of medical school so this was 2007. I remember professors say to us rather casually, if the D-dimer is negative, you have ruled out a PE. If it's positive, get the CT. We have since demonstrated that this is the wrong approach because you will have so many false positives that you will cause more harm than good. This is where the PERC rule comes into play. The authors of the study recognize the need for a simple rule-out criteria that is based on clinical factors and not based on a D-dimer. Now that we have some background, let's talk about the actual study. The important thing to realize about the PERC study is that it was prospective and it included separate derivation and validation studies. 
The prospective part means that clinicians had to input data as they were treating patients. This was not based on a chart review, because chart reviews can be notoriously unreliable in collecting good data. The PERC study enrolled 3,148 patients in the derivation study from 10 different hospitals, and then validated in 1,427 patients at two different hospitals. These large number of patients allowed the authors to get narrow confidence intervals on their data and capture a large number of patients who actually had a PE. The derivation part of the PERC study provided the data that allowed the researchers to create the PERC rule. It required that clinicians enter 21 variables into the computer before test results were available. These 21 variables were later fed into the computer to make up a rule that would reliably exclude PE. The treating providers were not made aware of any of this data while they were treating patients so that they wouldn't be biased. Once the rule was derived, it then had to be tested in a brand new population of patients to make sure that it worked in that new population. This is very important to do because you can data dredge on any data set to find a clinical decision rule that will work for any situation, but that means it will only work on that set of patients that you just studied. The real test is to take the new rule into a totally fresh set of patients and see how it performs. Don't trust any clinical decision rule that hasn't been validated in a brand new population. To drive this point home, let me give an example. Let's say that you studied a large number of patients who might have a PE. Based on this data set, you found by some stroke of luck that every patient with PE had brown hair. Based on that logic, your new rule could be that all patients with brown hair must have a PE, or conversely, if you don't have brown hair, you don't have a PE. If you took this rule into a brand new set of patients, it would obviously not work. Now this is an extreme example, but the message is the same. In order for a clinical decision rule to be considered valid, it has to be validated in a different population from the derivation group. I know I've talked about this before in the podcast on the PCARN head CT rule, but it's worth driving home one more time. I think I've beat a dead horse on this one, so from now on, no more big discussions on validation and derivation groups, okay? So let's talk about the derivation part of the study a little more, because it will help us later with applying the PERC rule. First, patients were enrolled in the study by what we call unstructured clinical decision-making. You've probably heard this defined as gestalt. This is a broad term that means that based on the clinician's training and experience, they felt that the patient needed some sort of evaluation for PE. The exact wording in this study was, enough clinical suspicion that a board-certified emergency physician thought that a formal evaluation for pulmonary embolism was necessary. Now, the board-certified part of that statement may alarm the students and residents out there, but it shouldn't. Basically, patients were entered into this study if PE was high enough on the differential that a PE workup was considered necessary. Here's the next step in the PERC rule. Patients were then only enrolled if the clinician thought that the patient was considered low risk. Low risk was defined as a low enough risk to justify exclusion of pulmonary embolism on the basis of a negative D-dimer. Remember that a D-dimer is a very sensitive test, somewhere in the 95% or higher range, so it's not 100%. This means that there are high-risk patients out there with a PE who have a negative D-dimer for some strange reason. For example, let's say you have a pregnant woman with unstable vital signs, chest pain, and shortness of breath, who is coughing up blood with a swollen leg, who just got off a long plane flight. 
Even the janitor knows that she has a PE. So are you going to stop the workup if the patient has a negative D-dimer? Of course not, because the D-dimer is not 100%. However, let's take the flip side. Whenever you order a test, you need to decide what to do with the results, positive or negative. In these low-risk patients in the PERC derivation arm, the clinician used that gestalt to say that the patients were low-risk enough that a negative D-dimer would be enough to rule out PE. So now the researchers have a population of patients where there is concern for PE, but they are considered low-risk. There was also a very low-risk group that was predefined and enrolled, but we'll talk more about that later. For these low-risk patients, those 21 variables that we mentioned before were collected. After some fancy math, the PERC rule was created. Let's review it here. The first step in the rule is that the clinician thinks that the patient is low-risk, and that is very important. You can't go any further if you don't think the patient is low-risk. For a patient to be PERC negative and avoid any further testing, you need to have all of the following criteria negative. To remember the PERC rule, I use the mnemonic breaths, B-R-E-A-T-H-S. Or better yet, you can look up the PERC rule on a website like mdcalc.com or consult any emergency medicine reference. BREATHS stands for B is for blood in the sputum or hemoptysis, R is for room air sat less than 95%, E is for estrogen use, A is for age greater than 50, T is for thrombosis, meaning a history of PE or DVT, or you currently suspect a DVT on exam, H is for heart rate above 100, and S is for surgery in the past four weeks or recent trauma. If a patient is no for all these criteria, then the patient is PERC negative and needs no further testing, and pulmonary embolism has been ruled out. Now let's talk about what it means to be PERC negative. When a patient is PERC negative, it doesn't mean that PE is totally excluded. The false negative rate of the PERC rule is 1.4%, which is very low, but not zero. The reason why we should accept this 1.4% miss rate is because the study authors calculated a test threshold of 1.8%. This means that using some fancy math, they calculated the percentage of patients who are harmed by testing for PE, compared to the number of patients who will benefit from the anticoagulation that we give patients who have a PE. They came up with a test threshold of 1.8%, meaning that when the risk of PE is below 1.8%, you will harm more patients than you help if you pursue the diagnosis of PE. In the end, the PERC rule had a specificity of 27%, meaning that when you applied the PERC rule, you were only able to rule out 27% of patients using the clinical criteria alone. This doesn't sound great, but this represents not using a D-dimer or any more testing in almost a third of your patients in whom you are considering a PE. As a quick note, the study also enrolled a very low-risk population to test the PERC rule to make sure they weren't missing any possible diagnoses of PE in patients whom PE was never suspected in the first place. For example, they enrolled patients who were presenting for asthma exacerbations and bronchitis that can cause shortness of breath, but clearly don't represent a PE. This was to make sure that they cast the net wide enough to capture every possible patient with PE. In this very low-risk group, the PERC rule was 100% sensitive, but only 15% specific. Now that we understand this study a little better, let's talk about two major issues. First, how to use the PERC rule in your everyday practice 
and then we'll talk about study that addressed the issue of clinician gestalt. Here's the first thing to remember about the PERC rule. This is a clinical decision aid that you apply to patients in whom you think there is some possibility of PE. You shouldn't go applying the PERC rule to everyone sitting in the waiting room because you will test a lot of people unnecessarily and cause a lot of harm. A painful ankle sprain can give a patient a heart rate over 100, which you wouldn't dream of working them up for a PE. To borrow from Scott Weingart from the MCARE podcast, the first step in all of these decision rules is to ask yourself, does the patient have a PE? No, really, do they? If your first answer is no, then stop right there and you're done. Don't do a perk rule, don't do a well score, don't look into a crystal ball, just stop right there. This pause helps you avoid going down a path that can lead to a lot of problems. So don't use the perk rule indiscriminately on every patient who walks through the doors in the ED. Let's illustrate this example with a case I heard about from my colleague while he was working as a resident. A young female comes in with an obvious asthma attack. History of asthma, wheezing, the whole nine yards. She's better after albuterol. However, the patient was tachycardic, probably from the albuterol, and may have been on birth control. So the attending ordered a CT, quote, just to make sure. Of course, it was negative, but the real surprise was when he looked back in her radiology jacket. This 20-something old female had five previous chest CTs in the past two years from the same attending, and all were negative for PE. Now I'll admit that I've ordered more than a few soft-call CTs in my young career, but cases like this represent a clear lack of thinking on the part of the clinician. The bottom line is, don't go start thinking that every patient you see in the ED has a PE. Use some judgment and make a decision as to which patients you will begin any sort of thought process regarding a PE. The next thing to talk about is how to use the PERC rule in your everyday practice. After you've asked the question, does this patient have a PE? No, really, do they? And your answer is maybe. Then the next thing to do is to risk stratify the patient into low, medium, and high risk using your gestalt. Remember for the PERC rule, low probability meant that you would feel comfortable ruling out PE if the D-dimer is negative. If you want numbers, most clinicians use a risk of PE of less than 15%. So now you have the patient in which you're somewhat concerned about pulmonary embolism. If the PERC rule is negative, then you can stop right there and consider PE ruled out. If the patient is PERC positive for any reason, then you should get a D-dimer. If the D-dimer is negative, then you can consider PE ruled out. If the D-dimer is positive, then you should pursue a CT pulmonary angiogram to rule out PE. If you consider a patient medium or high risk for PE, then current practice says that you should forego D-dimer testing and proceed directly to a CT. There are some that argue that D-dimers can still be used in medium risk patients. The ASEP clinical policy on pulmonary embolism says that using D-dimer in low-risk patients is a level A recommendation, which is the highest level of evidence and should be considered standard practice. Using D-dimers in intermediate-risk patients gets a level C recommendation. This level of evidence is based on expert consensus and is the lowest level of recommendation in this guideline. The author of the PERC study, Dr. Jeffrey Klein, has been on other podcasts before, saying that he believes that D-dimer can be used in intermediate-risk patients but until we have better evidence, the safest thing to say is that you only use D-dimers in low-risk patients. If the patient has an intermediate or high risk of pulmonary embolism, proceed to a CT. Finally, let's talk a little about Gestalt. 
This whole process of using Gestalt may be a little scary to inexperienced clinicians, but there is at least one study out there that says that it may not make a big difference. A study by Cabral et al. in 2005 in critical care medicine looked at the accuracy rate between providers of different levels of training in predicting pulmonary embolism before any testing based on history and physical exam alone. The accuracy for interns was 71%, while the accuracy for senior EM residents and attendings was 78%. This small difference in rates of accuracy should make providers feel confident that they can use the PERC rule, even if they are a relatively inexperienced provider. I'll post all of these reference papers in the show notes at embase.org. Now let's review all this rapid fire. Use the PERC rule in patients whom you think require workup for PE. Don't apply it indiscriminately, and don't use it in everyone who walks through the doors of the emergency department. If you feel that the patient is low risk and a negative D-dimer would rule out PE, then you apply the PERC rule before any other testing. The criteria is breaths. B is for broad in the sputum or hemoptysis. R is for room air sat less than 95%. E is for estrogen use. A is for age greater than 50. T is for thrombosis, meaning a history of PE or DVT, or currently suspected DVT. H is for heart rate above 100. S is for surgery in the past four weeks or recent trauma. If the patient is perconegative, stop there. If the patient is perk positive, then do a D-dimer. If that is negative, then stop. If the D-dimer is positive, then get a CT pulmonary angiogram. Don't use the perk rule in medium or high-risk patients, and don't apply it to every patient you see. Only the patients in whom you think a workup for PE is warranted. That's all I have for now on the perk rule. Keep in mind that this was not a deep dive on the PE literature. There are plenty of great podcasts out there that talk about PE, and I will link to a few in the show notes. As always, send me your comments and suggestions to steve at embase.org. Until next time, this is Steve Carroll for the EM Basic Podcast, signing off.